And so, um, so we have a guest speaker coming up. So Jay, if you want to come on up, we have Jay Vincent is going to be preaching this morning. And uh, Jay has been in pastoral ministry longer than I've existed. And so uh, Jay has a lot of just experience of how God has worked in his life, how the gospel has shaped. Um, I'm just getting to know Jay a little bit more, but he works with the care team here at our church and also over the chaplaincy team, and he's been doing that for about three years. And so he's going to um, bring God's word to you to start off the new year. So give it up for Jay Vincent. Thank you, Pastor. Thanks for putting that up there, but it's in the way. It's good to see you this morning, and I, I praise God for a, another year where we can rejoice and also work and serve our Lord. Uh, I was asked to, to share, I did not know that it was Lance's birthday until yesterday when I looked on the city, and there's this little package in the bottom right-hand corner that says, today is Lance Hans' birthday. So... I looked at it and I thought, I know what he's up to. He's just going to get away so he didn't have to deal with all of the happy birthday, happy birthday, happy birthday stuff. Uh, and so I thought maybe we could pull a, a little trick on him. He's going to be listening to the, uh, to the, the, the podcast. <laughs> Are you ready to sing happy birthday to Lance? Yeah. All right, here we go. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Lance. Happy birthday to you. Ha ha, we got him, huh? All right. Well, it's an honor to, to be here this morning and, and share. Um, Matt mentioned a little bit about my ministry. Uh, I started in ministry in 1962, and, and God uh, honored me the year before that by giving me a bride who has been my bride since, since 1950, uh, 1961. We have enjoyed 50 years of marriage and just celebrated last week. <laughs> Harriet has been my teammate all these years. She's sitting right over here. For those who don't know, she kind of heads up the, uh, the prayer team ministry and keeps that alive and moving on the, on the city so that you know what, just what's happening on, in the prayer needs of the church. Uh, she's also involved in women's ministries. We have just been involved all our lives, and we don't know what to do. You know, it's kind of the old story. Even a, uh, when they when they retired the the fire horses, remember they used to pull fire engines with horses, and they 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 retired the horses, but every time the bell went off, they were ready to go. And that's kind of the way it is. You you live a life, and you're a part of a, a certain style of life, and it, it's just a part of you. You can't give it up. I retired, semi-retired, from our church in, uh, here in Rockland. I served 20 years at Sierra College Baptist and went into semi-retirement, and I've been driving semi ever since. Uh, we uh, uh, in, enjoy this church immensely. I spent two years as, a, as interim pastor of two different churches in the area until we decided we needed a church home, a place where we could be uh, and serve but also grow like everyone else. And uh, we were pleased to to be uh, to be able to find this church and, and a place where we can serve. So we rejoice in that opportunity and thank you for being here today. Uh, I really didn't know if anybody would show at nine o'clock on New Year's Day. Hmm. <laughs> You're to be commended. All right. We're starting a new year. It's a journey. 
And as we start this new year, I got to thinking about journeys and, and trips and so forth. And we would like to travel. We've got a trailer, and, and we like to hook up the trailer and take off. And not too many years ago, we took the longest trip we've ever taken with our trailer. We went back to Alabama to visit family. But one of the things we did was we got the maps out. We planned the trip. We looked where we're going to go. We're going to be in this place, and we're going to stay here. And we're going to go. And, and we planned out all of that trip because we needed a road map. I'd never been back there. Uh, I had been by plane to Dallas. I had been by plane to, to uh, places like Atlanta, and I've been to, to New York by plane. But I've, you know, on the ground, it's a different story down there. Really found that out when we were traveling. You see, we planned to go from, uh, from uh, uh, El Paso, Texas to San Antonio, and we were going to stop halfway. Now, we'd never been out in that part of the country. We didn't know what was out there. We found out there's nothing out there. We were going to stop at a place that was Fort something or other. I can't remember. It was halfway between. We thought that would be a nice place to stay. We got out there and we looked and we said, there's nothing here. So we just drove on, 541 miles that day. We were glad to get there, but it's nothing out there. You see, we didn't have anybody to help us understand the, the road. We couldn't tune in to somebody else's in, uh, uh, contributions to what they had experienced. The Christian life is a journey. And when you walk the Christian life, you need to know what the roadmap says. And you need to know that there's going to be some pitfalls. You need to know that there's going to be some needs along the way that you're going to experience. And you need to know how those needs will be supplied. Since it's the beginning of the year, I thought, you know, it'd be a great idea if we did a little review. You know, the pilots that we... Uh, sit behind when they fly the planes they have to go in to be recertified every so often and that certification involves a lot of going through the rudimentary things things they've been doing for 20 30 40 years some of them but they need to go back through so that they can meet some needs if they should happen same thing goes with a christian life we need a review and a recertification from time to time and that's what I want us to do this morning is kind of go through the roadmap and get some fundamentals down in our life in regards to who we are, where we're going, but most importantly, who it is we follow, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because there is, there's a lot of stuff out there that, that can confuse us and get us off track. I mentioned that uh, I retired five years ago, and one of the things that happened when I started driving the, uh, the first Good Friday service that I would have led in our church, I'm driving down the road. And I'm thinking, man, this is, I'm just not in the place I'm supposed to be in. And so I'm driving along, and I go to the first customer, and I pull in, and, and my attitude kind of stinks in a little bit. And I, I roll in, and I tell them where, you know, I've got their load for them. And they say, well, go around to the building, back into the dock, and my man will be there. So I back in. And I get out of the truck, and I walk around to the back, and I get, climb up on the dock, and out walks Jesus on Good Friday. His name is Jesus. Okay? Now, I talked with him. I said, man, on Good Friday, you've got a good name there. He says, yes, and I'm honored to carry it. Okay? That started my day off good. What I'm saying is there are a lot of temptations to follow after a Jesus that are not really the Jesus of the Scriptures. 
Do we truly know Jesus? So that when someone presents a false teaching, can we follow the correct way, knowing who we follow? So I want us to take time and, and kind of map out some things and touch on some of the rudimentary things this morning. So if you take your Bibles out and turn to the Gospel of John, and if you're using the, the, uh, the Bibles there in the chairs, there, it's page 886. Page 886. The Gospel of John, the first chapter, is loaded with the rudimentary things that you need to know about this one we call Jesus, who is the Savior of all. And I want us to go through this, brush up, and be ready, because there are always those who will come knocking at your door with a false Jesus. It's not the Jesus of Scripture. And so we read these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Let's pray. Father, as we enter into this time of study in Your Word, we pray... Help us to understand and to know the rudimentary things of our faith that we not be swayed in any way by circumstances, by false teaching, by temptation, but that we will know through the the knowledge that we share that you truly are the one and only God who loves us and has given his son for us. Father, I pray also that, that we not just hear the words and the musings of men, but we hear you speak. We ask that your Holy Spirit teach us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. When we first look at this passage, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right away, some people would say, well, okay, Word. Why is that term used? I hope maybe that stirred some questions in your mind. Why does that term mean anything? It doesn't say a whole lot. Wouldn't it be better just to say in the beginning was Jesus? He was with God in the beginning because he is God? You can say and you can do a lot of things just blatantly off the top. But one of the things we need to recognize is that everything that we see in Scripture verifies itself. You know, there's a simple principle of of biblical interpretation that we need to look at, and that is this. Let the Bible speak for itself. Compare Scripture with Scripture. Look to see, dig, find out what is there. The Scripture is a treasure trove. What we need to be is those who dig for the treasure that is there. And so when we look at this passage and we say, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God, I hope it draws some questions to mind and say, well, why would God say it that way? We're going to get to that in a minute. First thing I want you to see is this, in the beginning. In the beginning. Before time began, in the beginning, the Word was already there. So what we're seeing is that this Word is an eternal person, an eternal being, because in the very next verse it says He was with God in the beginning. So we're not dealing with a power or an influence, but we're dealing with a person who is an eternal person who was with God in the very beginning because He is God. That's what that is all about. He was with God because He is God. He's an eternal being. He's a person. We see also 
In verse 3, through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that was made. So he's not only an eternal being, but he's the creator of all things. So right away we have a, a, at least an understanding of this being that is being introduced to us. He is God Almighty. Now we get to this term, the Word. The Word is God. When you look at the first verse, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There are some out there who would take this translation and twist it, and they would insert the little article A. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. What does that tell you? He's just one of many, right? A God. That's not what the Scriptures say. There's a grammatical law that is being broken when that word is inserted because when you insert the, the indefinite article A, you change the meaning. Now there's the article A, the article N, and the article the. Some basic principles. You can insert the, it doesn't change a thing. That's a definite article. But if you insert A or N, it changes the meaning of the sentence. Grammatically, you cannot and so a valid translation would be, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was the God. Kind of awkward, but it doesn't change the meaning. You get where we're going? Okay. So we've got this understanding of who we're dealing with. Someone will come and knock at your door, and they'll start talking about a Jesus. Well, there's a lot of Jesuses in the world. I met one on Good Friday, 2007, and I've met many since. Tony, I know you know several. Amen. Okay? So we've, we've got these, we've got people coming at us and they're talking about a Jesus, but the thing we need to recognize, he's not the Jesus of the Bible. Okay? Moving on. We also know that this term God is somewhat confusing to some. We see in our society today all kinds of bumper stickers that, you know, there's, uh, we need to coexist. And you see all these religious symbols. The problem with coexisting is that everybody that doesn't know Jesus Christ is on their way to hell. I'm not satisfied to coexist and let people go to hell. I have a responsibility, you have a responsibility, and that is to share with them there is only one God and one way to Him. Jesus said in John 14:6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What? No one comes to the Father but by me. And we Christians, we get, we get uh, criticized quite often because, well, you're so, so exclusive. You exclude everybody else. No, we're not exclusive. God is the one that's exclusive. He created us. He made us. We screwed it up. Now it's up to us to follow his pattern and get back where we're supposed to be. But he says, if you're going to come to me, it's through my son. But there are those out there that claim, well, you know, there's, there are, okay, so there's one God, but there's many different ways. We've covered that. But there are those also who say there are many different gods. You choose your God and we'll choose mine. That's, I call that potluck religion. You know, and there's a lot of that today in our world where people go around and they pull a little of this, they pull a little of this, and they pull a little of this. This is the God we like. But that's not the God of the Scriptures. Because the God of the Scriptures is one God and there is no other. 
Turn with me to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 43, page 603 in, in the Bibles that you have in your hand, if, if it's not your own, maybe yours is the same page. Minus 646. It changes depending on your translation. By the way, for those who are wondering, I am using the New International, the old New International, that's still a good translation. The reason is because you can't teach an old dog new tricks. And the other reason is I don't have the money to buy one yet. So when I get one, I'll use it. But you know something? This is my sword. It's the sword of the Spirit. And I've used this particular Bible now since 1978. And I know where everything is. You know, there's a certain place on the, on the page that you're familiar with, and I can see it on the page sometimes. And I, So I'm using my old sword. Forgive me if it uh, distracts you from time to time because the words are a little different, but that's where I'm at. In Isaiah 43, 44, 45, and 46, God makes some statements about himself that are very exclusive of all other opportunities to worship another god. In Isaiah 43, verse 12, he says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. I am God. We turn the page to Isaiah 45, 44, excuse me, and we see in verse 6 of Isaiah 44, This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first, I am the last. Apart from me there is no God. Sound like something else you've read someplace else? I'm the first, I'm the last, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Moving on, jump over to, uh, excuse me, clear my throat a little bit. Jump over to chapter 45. In chapter 45, verse 3, 5, I'm sorry. I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me. Verse 12 of chapter 45. It is I who made the earth and created mankind upon it. My own hand stretched out the heavens. I marshaled the starry host. He controls where the stars are. He controls where everything is. He put everything in its place. You drop down to verse 14 at the very end of it. He says, Surely God is with you, and there is no other. There is no other God. I am the Lord, verse 18. For this is what the Lord says, He who created the heavens, He is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, He founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. This theme is repeated throughout those chapters. I have a little challenge for you. One of the things you need to do is spend time in the Word for yourself. Study to know how to get from place to place what's going on there in the Scriptures. Take time and go through Isaiah 43, 44, 45, and 46 and just jot down the various things God says about Himself in those chapters. He's the Creator. He's the one that holds. He forgives our sins. He washes us clean. He created the heavens and the earth. He puts everything in its place. These are all part of what God says about himself. And yet others in this world will come along and say, well, gee, there are other gods out there to worship. No, in Isaiah 45, he says, what is this? You go out, you cut down a tree, and you cut it in half, and you make half of it into an idol, and you bow and worship, but the rest of it you just burn? 
How foolish. Man creates gods in his own image. We see the same thing in Romans chapter 1. We'll get there in a little bit. But we need to understand something clearly about God. In the fundamentals, there is no other. There is no other way to get to him except by way of his son, Jesus Christ. Move on to verse 3. And through, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made. And in him was life. And that life was the light of men. That life is the light of men. I've done many funerals in, in my ministry. And one of the things that I've noticed is that every dead body stays dead. There's no life there. It looks different. When, when the life is taken from a body, when the life disappears... The body is just a shell. And it, yes, it resembles the person that used to be there, but it's not the same person. It's just a shell. When Christ enters in, he gives light. There's a new life that's given. And he is the one who created life and gave light to all. Now, with this in mind... <clears throat> We bounce to this concept I was introducing to you at the very beginning. Why use the word? Wouldn't it be easier just to say, in the beginning was Jesus, and he is the creator of all things, and not only is he the creator of all things, but he brought life into all people. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. And yes, the page number is page 1 in the Bibles in your hands. Genesis, the beginning. And the thing I want you to see is this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Is there a parallel there, parallel there between John and Genesis? Absolutely. The word created. Where does that come from? Well, follow me, if you will. Verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Verse 6, and God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. And it was so. Verse 9, and God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. Verse 14, and God said, let there be lights. Verse 20, and God said, let the water teem with living creatures. And it was so. All the way through the book of Genesis, at the, end of, uh, at the beginning of each day of creation, what do we see happening? God said, let there be. He created by the spoken word. All the way through creation, God created by the spoken word. So when John wrote John, he was being led by the Holy Spirit to bring this parallel to understand that when this creative act took place in Genesis the one who was in John's mind when he wrote the book of John was also there and he was part of that creation. He was the Word who created. He was the Word that created. We see this also being brought out in, in the book of Hebrews. If you turn in, your, in those Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1, which is page 1001, and I don't know what that popping is. We're trying to resolve it. Uh, if I stood still, it probably would end, but I'm, I'm not able to stand still. Hebrews chapter 1. In the, verse, the first three verses of Hebrews 1, we read the, this. 
In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. You see a few things there that you might be able to relate to? What God says is in the past, I've spoken to you in many different ways. I spoke through creation. I've spoken through the prophets. But in these last days, I've spoken to you by my son, who is the exact representation of who I am. And when he finished purifying you by paying for your sins, he sat down on my right hand. And he sustains the universe by his powerful, what? Word. That term word is critical to understand. It's about Jesus because he is the word of God. In John chapter 14... Jesus was preparing, to, to, uh, preparing his disciples for his departure. In the upper room discourse, John 14, he says this, Let not your hearts be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in me. By the way, that's King Jimmy. Uh, for those who know what I'm talking about, I grew up on the King James Version. A lot of my memory work was in the King James, so I used some of it. I used some New American Standard. I used some New International. I've memorized all these concepts, but... Uh, word for word is a little difficult for me because of that. So he says, in the, be- in the beginning, <laughs> now we go to let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, there you may be also. And the disciples kind of scratched their head and looked at one another and said, what does he mean? Where is he going? And they said, Lord, where are you going? And then Philip said, well, Lord, if you'll just show us the Father, that will be enough for us. In John 14, 8 and 9, Jesus says this, Philip, have I been with you so long that you say, show me the Father and that will be enough? If you have seen the Son, you have seen the Father. If you want to know who God is, You need to study who Jesus is. You need to find out who he is. He's the exact representation of God the Father. Everything that God is, Jesus is. Grasp that thought. Hang on to it. When someone tells you something different about Jesus, say, "Uh uh-uh, you're not going there with me. You're not going there with me. So the word is about Jesus. He brought life. He brought light. He is the way, the truth, and the life. We go on a little bit, and I want to pass through this next portion quickly and get into uh, the next aspect of the word, but I want us to see this. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. Uh, Do we have anybody here named John? Raise your hand, would you? One, two, three, several. Okay. Every one of you is a different person. There are many Johns in the Bible. This John is not the John who wrote the Gospel of John. This is John the Baptist. This is the cousin of Jesus. This is the one who was six months older than Jesus, who was chosen for a specific purpose, and that was to introduce Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. 
He was to prepare the way of the Lord. Isaiah 40, verse 3. John quotes this when he's asked, Who are you? I am a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. That's, what, that's the John we're dealing with right here. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. And he came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness of the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. John makes it clear, I'm not the light, I'm just the one testifying about it. Then verse 10, it says that he, the word, was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to, wit, uh, to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Some thoughts here that we need to brush up on. Jesus came into the world. He made the world, but the world didn't recognize him. Why not? I mean, after all, if you were Pinocchio and you were made by the the puppeteer, you would know who made you, right? Well, that example doesn't work too well because Pinocchio wasn't alive yet. But Geppetto prayed, oh, give me a son. He ended up with Pinocchio. Jesus is not Pinocchio. Don't take it too far. I'm just, okay? What I'm saying is this, that we should know our Creator. We should be able to recognize Him. But Jesus came into the world, and the world didn't even recognize Him. The question is, why not? Well, there's a number of reasons. And I'd like to kind of give you an option here on them. You know, options? When we first came, Lance was teaching in Revelation, and he always came up with options. Well, there's a couple of options here that I'd like for you to see. The world didn't know him. Why not? Well, the world was blinded. Do you know in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, the Word of God tells us that the God of this world, the God of this age, blinds non-believers so that they cannot comprehend the light of the gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. We see also in that same book, in 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 11, verses 13 and 14, it says this, that false teachers come masquerading, but why not? Because their leader, Satan, masquerades as an angel of light so that people are confused and see counterfeits. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 and 14. There are many counterfeits. You need to be able to see the truth and understand the truth. So I, I share this with you about one option as far as being blinded. There's another option, willful, willful blindness. In Romans chapter 1, we read, and, and I'd like you to turn there if you would. Romans chapter 1, it's not too far. You've got John and Acts and then Romans. And there's a, a, a blind disregard for who God is that is pictured in Romans chapter 1. And that's one of the reasons we have blindness in our world today. Starting with verse 18. 
It says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. The truth of who God is is suppressed by the wickedness of man. How many times did you hear at 9-11 people say, Why would God do this? God didn't do it. It was the wickedness of men. And the wickedness of men caused people to blame God. It's always that way, isn't it? God didn't do it, but the wickedness of man did. We also see in this passage another aspect. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen. So that men are without excuse. So if they're without excuse, why is it they don't see it? Because they willfully choose not to. We see a little later on, rather than give God the glory in this very same passage in Romans chapter 1, rather than give God the glory for who He is, man chose instead to worship hands, things created by their own hands or animals or such things. It's a willful disregard for who God is. That's one of the reasons they did not see who Jesus was. That's one of the reasons people don't see who Jesus is today. The thing I want you to see, though, is this. Yet to all who receive him, we're back in John now, verse 12 of chapter 1. Yet to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of husband's will, but born of God. There's an important factor here that we need to grasp, and that is this. We're worshiping the almighty, sovereign God, who's, who's ruler of all things, who holds the stars in their place, who holds the planets in their course, and what do we have? This God says, if you want to be my kids, you have the authority to make that decision. There's a lot of people don't understand that. Well, I don't have the right, I have no right to be a child of God. Oh, yes, you do. God gives you that right. That's your decision. That's, your, that's by your will you make that decision for yourself. No one else can make it for you. Mom and dad can't make it for you. Uncles and grandparents, they can't make this decision for you. The only person who can make the decision is you, and God gives you the right and the authority to make that decision. And the beauty of it all is, God says, y'all come. Y'all come. We move on then in verse 14. And the Word, the Word comes up again. And the Word became flesh and, we, and made His dwelling among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh. That's called the incarnation, became flesh and dwelt among us. We celebrated that just last week, the birth of Jesus Christ. God became flesh and lived in our midst. But the word there, dwelt, is, is a term for temporary, just set up a tent. Because Jesus wasn't coming at that time for a permanent dwelling. He came only for a purpose, and that was to live his life pure and holy and present himself on the, on the cross for our sins. So it was temporary. 
Later on, we see in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17, Paul is praying for, for the, the disciples and the, and the believers in, in Ephesus, and he says, it is my prayer that Jesus will, will, will be at home in your heart, will dwell in your heart permanently. It's a different word. It's a different concept. You see, when Jesus comes into our lives, he comes in on a permanent basis. He doesn't come in and go, come in and go, come in and uh-uh. He comes in, he's here. Praise God for that. Amen. We move on and John says this in verse 15. John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Meaning, I was born before him, but he's before me. Knowing the eternal state of the one he, he follows. From the fullness of his grace we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only who is at the Father's side has made him known. There again the theme of the word to make known the person of God. But what I'd share with you from here is is wrapped up in this concept of grace and truth. You remember when Jesus stood before Pilate and he says, what is truth? We live in a world that bases truth upon its own experience. What I experience is true. Everything else is false. That's the rational, rationale of this world that we live in today. You see, there are absolutes and truth is an absolute. And this is an absolute. It's not to be changed. It's not to be altered. We are to follow it completely. Jesus came bringing truth. But it also says he came bringing grace. Grace is a concept that I think we forget about. We sing about it. We talk about it some. But do you realize that grace is a concept that gives you something you don't deserve? By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9. We have been saved by the grace of God. We don't deserve it. That's what grace is, giving you something you don't deserve. The counterpart of that is mercy. I've heard people say, don't give me mercy, I just need justice. Oh, yes, you need mercy. Because mercy is not giving you what you do deserve. We deserve hellfire and damnation. We deserve hell because of the sin in our life. We do not deserve heaven. But God has given it to us based upon faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus came to make all this known. Well, very quickly, we go through the next few verses. And and John's testimony was troubling. And so the Jews, and I'm just going to paraphrase over the next few verses, the Jews from Jerusalem sent scribes and Pharisees out to find out from from John just just who is he. He's created a stir. He's out here in the middle of the wilderness. Uh, He looks kind of funny, but he's sure got a lot of people following him. He's got camel hair. He's got a belt around him. Uh, He eats honey and locusts and uh, uh, doesn't drink wine like everybody else. Uh, He's got long hair, kind of like Lance used to have when he played drums. 
Who are you, John? We need to know. And he said, are, are, are you the prophet? No, I'm not the prophet. The prophet was, was prophesied about in, in Deuteronomy chapter 18 when Moses was told, I will raise up another prophet like you. And you go on and read that passage and you find out that prophet that was going to be raised up was Messiah. So the question was, are you the Messiah? He says, no, I'm not. Are you Elijah? Well, Elijah never died and the, and the Jews believed that Elijah would return when Messiah came. So, yeah, are, are you Elijah? No, I'm not Elijah. Then who are you? We've got to have an answer. When we go back, they're going to want to know. So tell us. We don't want to go back and have our heads handed to us. And John simply says, I am simply a voice crying in the wilderness, make straight, make right the way for the Lord. That's all I am. Well, then, then why do you baptize with water? What is this stuff about baptizing? By the way, in case you are not aware, baptism is not something that originated with the church. The Jews practiced baptism for those proselytes who came into Judaism from from a Gentile world, and that was the last rite that they went through. They went through a purification process, and and it was a study process. And and men, of course, went through the circumcision, the the whole thing. And at the end, they were baptized into the body of Israel. So baptism was not a foreign thought to them, but the idea that Jews were being baptized, this was really getting them. They wanted to know, why are you baptizing? And then he says, I came bringing the message of repentance. But when we read a little further, we find out in John John chapter 1, 34, 35, 36, that John had been given a message by God that said, You will go baptizing, and I will raise up my Messiah, and you will be able to identify him. This is Vincent's translation, by the way. You will be able to identify him because the Spirit of God will descend upon him in the form of a dove. And that's exactly what happened. In in Matthew chapter 4, in Luke chapter 4, in Mark chapter 1, we see the baptism of Jesus. And when Jesus was raised up out of the water by John the Baptist, the Spirit of God descended upon him and the voice said from heaven, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Folks, that's what John the Baptist was to do. And the thing that I want you to see is this. In John chapter 1 verse 29, John said, uh, John said about John the Baptist, He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. But he did confess who Christ is. Are we free enough to share, I belong to Jesus Christ, to those around us? Are we bold enough, like John the Baptist, maybe not to dress weird, although there are a lot of get-ups in this world that people wear, That's not the point. The point is this. When given the opportunity, are we bold enough to stand up and say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ? That's what John the Baptist did. And that's a challenge, I think, that that could be levied to each and every one of us, for that's what we're to do. Tell others about Jesus Christ. Well, as you go through that, you come to the crux to what I wanted to share with you as well. 
A couple of points. One, know your fundamentals and know who Jesus Christ is. Amen? Be able to say to those around you who, who want to talk about another way, there's only one way. And to be able to be armed with what you need to say, no, there's only one way. Know indeed that Christ is God in the flesh who came as creator and introduced to people the way of salvation through his giving of himself. But then it wraps up with this, verse 29 of John chapter 1. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said a man comes after me who has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the next day, John looks and he says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. It's important to see this phrase and see it clearly. When John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God, he's picturing an Old Testament picture that that the Jews were all familiar with. The picture of the sin offering every year that was taken place. When a lamb was taken, laid on the altar as a sin offering. The blood was taken and put on the doorposts and on the lintels, symbolizing the cross and the blood that cleanses. This is all a part of what John is saying. It also pictured, if you will, the, the event that took place in Genesis 22 when Abraham who now is 100 years old, has 120 years old, has a 20-year-old son. And the Lord says to him, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, and take him up on the mountain that I will show you and offer him there on the altar to me. This picture is vivid in the minds of the Jews. They know it. They see it. They understand it. And so when John says, the Lamb of God... They see Abraham, who's 120 years old, leading his son, leading the donkeys that have the firewood on it, leading his, his, his uh, helpers that came along. And when they get to the bottom of the mountain, Abraham turns and says to his, his laborers, he says, you stay here, the lad and I are going up on the mountain to worship God, and we will return. What a step of faith. They go up on the mountain. And as they're going up on the mountain, Isaac looks over to Dad and he says, Hey, Dad, I I see the wood. I see the fire. I see the knife. But where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? Abraham says something prophetic. He says, The Lord will provide himself a lamb. It's prophetic in the fact that Abraham didn't know what was going to happen, but he knew his son was coming down off that mountain. And he knew he was going to offer his son on that altar. And he knew that the only way his son was going to come down off that, altar, uh, off that mountain was because God raised him up, because he was going to follow through on what God said. Now, Isaac is 20 years old. I don't know a 20-year-old man that couldn't, tell a 120 year old man ain't going to (laughs) happen 
And you know, I've got two boys. And there were times I would gladly have given them up <laughs> to someone else. But I could never have followed through. But Abraham led his son up to the mountain, and Isaac willfully allowed himself to be tied, bound, and laid on the altar. Abraham had faith. Isaac had faith. And God rewarded that faith. Because as Abraham was about to plunge the knife into his son's heart, God says, stop. I know now that you were willing to give me your son. Your son was dead to you. But he is now alive. He is now alive. And over in the thicket, God provided a lamb, a ram. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Singular. Important to read that. The sin of the world. The reason it's singular is because the term sin is all-inclusive. There isn't a sin out there that Jesus Christ didn't die for. There isn't a sin out there that Jesus didn't redeem. And there isn't a person in the world that he can't redeem. The decision comes down to whether or not you will accept what he has done for you. When he died on the cross, he was the Lamb of God that took away the sin, all of the sin of the world. And I take you back to John 1.12. For as many as received him, to them gave he the authority to become the children of God. There is no better way to start the new year than to know that you are part of the family of God. I encourage you to think about that. Pray about that. And if you want to talk to somebody about it, there's someone be over at the prayer corner. I'll be roaming around. I'd love to talk to you about it. But don't leave without knowing that Jesus Christ died for your sin. And notice I said sin, singular. I had a neighbor once that was convinced God couldn't pay for his sins. He had done too many bad things. And I was able to share this verse with him. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Don't hide behind your sin. Don't stay away because you've done wrong things. But come to Jesus Christ who died for you, the Lamb of God.